A brief update. It's May the 12th, 2024. I've released just two episodes of this year. My father-in-law passed away in January. He bravely fought a multitude of health issues for well over 15 years. Rest in peace, John. My wife of more than 20 years, Lisa, is remarkably strong, much more so than I. Her outlook on life is always positive and has motivated me to resume my passion project. Research for new episodes is now well underway. Stay tuned and sincere thanks for subscribing to my podcast. A couple of quick stats again. The USA, that can't be right. I've got the same stats from the previous game. 39 of 65 and 19 of 28. Have I just copied that and left it in there? That is remarkable and one of the most underrated stats of the 1984 Olympics that the USA shooting numbers were exactly the same. (laughs) The best two games. (laughs) Note to self, don't copy and paste text. Um, (laughs) There's our lead-in for episode four. (laughs) Crazy stuff. All right. I always like to say that Michael got to play with me for a year at North Carolina. <laughs> I think it really helped him. Spectacular player from the beginning. You can see right away Jordan was going to be a big-time scorer. And showed what an impact he was going to have on the league. This is NB85, celebrating the 30-year anniversary of Michael Jordan's rookie season in the NBA. And now, your hosts, Adam Ryan and Aaron Steen. Welcome back to the show, Aaron, for episode four of NB85. Thanks again for joining me, mate. It's great to be back for episode four, mate. Just before we get going, mate, you had a quick comment that you'd like to make mention of going back to episode three, thanks to one of our faithful listeners. Breaking ground here on MB85, our first ever apology. (laughs) It's an apology from myself on some inaccurate facts in episode three. I mentioned that Tom and Dick Van Arsdale were, along with Horace and Harvey Grant, the only twins to play in the NBA. That's just me and my in inverted commas, stuck in the 1991 NBA Finals mindset. Uh, I'm well aware of the Collins, Morris and Lopez boys. It's just that with me, they don't register. So thank you to Matt Heasley for pointing out my laziness on that one. And as David Robinson once said after MJ dunked on him, accidents happen. (laughs) That they do, mate. Thank you, Matthew, for pointing that out, and thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast whilst we're at it. 1984, Team USA, Games of the 23rd Olympiad. Let's begin, mate. We're going to be talking all about the 1984 Olympic Games, this time around on Episode 4. I want to quickly start off with an article that I found from July the 23rd, titled, US Team, A Cinch for Gold? Question mark. A couple of really good quotes, one from Pat Riley. They have to be considered the favourites. The road that Coach Knight has them going along is well-timed. Bobby won't let them slip for an instant. They've never been sloppy or shoddy. Another of the quotes from this article is from Kiki Vandeway, who was with the Portland Trailblazers. He said, The Olympians should go off somewhere and form their own pro team. They're that good. I think they got the gold medal won right now. These quotes are happening around the same time that the final exhibition games are being played in the lead-up to the games themselves, and we talked all about these games in Episode 3 of NB85. Pat Riley was coach of one of the games where the Team USA took on the NBA Stars, and Kiki Vandeweghe was also a player in one of those exhibitions as well. And in the lead-up to the games, there were reports that said that a number of teams beside the US bear watching uh, including Spain with 29-year-old playmaker and cardiologist Juan Antonio Corbalan. We'll be uh, chatting about him a bit later too. And just on the games themselves, 18 countries boycotted the 1984 games for numerous reasons. It's reported that the Soviet Union led the, the boycott and that it affected a lot of the organised events at the games. The other countries that chose to stay home actually had their own games called the Friendship Games in July and August of 1984, which was a ratings winner, I'm sure. (laughs) Now, for what it's worth, the 1984 Olympic Games, it was China's first summer games in 32 years. Now, there's a great article, mate, from July the 28th, which is titled, China's Basketball Team Plays Police. Now, you can't make this stuff up. On Thursday night, July the 26th, at the LAPD Academy Gym... China took on the LAPD, mate. In 1992, 
in the warm-up to the Barcelona games. Everyone knows that the Dream Team played in the, the tournament of the Americas, so so playing other countries you know, from North and South America. Even this year in 2014, in the lead-up to the World Cup, the, uh, the USA team is playing against other countries such as Puerto Rico, Brazil. And no matter how many times I read this back to myself, I find it just as humorous as the other first time that I read it, that the Chinese in the lead up to their first game of the Olympic Games, which was actually against the US national team, that they warmed up against the Los Angeles Police Department. Stunning stuff. It's straight out of the you can't make this up file. There's no doubt about that. Now, the game itself was described as a tune-up scrimmage, a warm-up for their (laughs) confrontation with the highly favoured US team. And as best told by the following quote from the said article. So while the American team prepared for the Olympics this week by demolishing NBA All-Stars for the ninth straight time, the Chinese prepared by playing the cops. <laughs> that pretty much says <laughs> it all. Just fantastic stuff, really. I did some fact-checking via the Internet Movie Database online and this game versus the LAPD it must have been some pre-production work for Police Academy 3 back in training because the first Police Academy was released in March of 1984. I'm sure that in hindsight, China would have preferred to play a much stronger cop position than the LAPD. (laughs) (laughs) I had to work that in there, mate. I couldn't help myself. Uh, You know what I'm like with wordplay. Fascinating stuff that they'd actually take on an LAPD team just days before the Olympic Games commenced. But as I did mention, it was 32 years since they took part in the Summer Games. So I guess it's not that out of the ordinary when you look at it that way. That's the best that the Chinese Olympic Committee, I guess they would have been called at the time. That's the best that the uh, officials could arrange for their national team as a warm-up game to play a game against policemen. (laughs) I wonder if Hightower played centre. Um, now, another article, which was from July 28, was titled, Will US Hoop Team Win Easily? And in the article, it suggested that Patrick Ewing may see limited court time against China as he was suffering from an aching neck and shoulder. And then on the Wednesday before USA's Olympic opener, he compounded his problems when a car door slammed on his hand. So a comedy of errors there, unfortunately. That would have driven his decision, I'm sure. (laughs) It would have for sure, mate. I've got no other comment to make except for uh, hello to Antoine Carr. In the same article, Jordan was quoted as saying, we can put any five we have out there and get the job done. It's not only the key players, it's everybody doing what's best for the team. You mentioned about the 1984 Olympics and how some of the countries boycotted it. In 1980, over 50 countries boycotted the Games due to an ongoing war. Uh, Yugoslavia won the gold in USA's absence. Now, in 1984 at the Olympics, there were two groups of six countries taking part in the basketball competition. The top four countries from each group would advance to the quarterfinals. In Group A, we had Australia, Brazil, Egypt, Italy, West Germany, and Yugoslavia. And in Group B, Canada, China, France, Spain, the USA, and Uruguay. I've tried to do all possible to confirm the dates and days that these games were played because on different sources it actually varies, but I'm going off the newspaper articles that I scoured the internet for in the lead up to this whole project taking place. So I found heaps of articles and overwhelmingly these suggested to be the correct days and dates. So we'll see how we go. So with that being said, mate, the first game took place on Sunday, July the 29th. It was USA versus China. And the final score, it was never really in doubt the US were going to comfortably win. It was just by how much. So it was 97 to 49. All the games took place in Los Angeles at the Forum, home of the LA Lakers. The US got off to a flying start, of course, almost doubling China's score. It was said in an article that the US ransacked China in the 97 to 49 win. God only knows how that happened with China warming up against the LAPD. <laughs> I can see this is going to be a recurring theme from here on in, mate. Now, for the USA, Alvin Robertson was the high scorer with 18 points. He had 16 of those in the second half. 
He had six rebounds as well. Michael Jordan had 14 points, 12 of which came in the first half. Chris Mullen and Patrick Ewing had 12 points apiece, and Leon Wood had 10 assists. So some really good stat lines there. And Leon Wood is going to be one of the guys that we'll be mentioning a little bit over the course of this episode because he really did stand out, particularly in the assist column in, in many of these games. A couple of quick facts and figures from the game as well. The USA started the following five guys. It was Alvin Robertson and Vern Fleming at the guard. Jordan and Perkins were starting forwards. And Wayman Tisdale got the nod as starting center. Ewing was hurt, as we mentioned in that previous article, but he did get court time as well. The USA shot 39 of 65 from the field, so they had 60% field goal percentage, which is very good, and they were 19 of 28 from the free throw line for 68%. The US were up 50 to 29 at the half, and they out-rebounded China 42 to 23 on the boards. All 12 players for Team USA scored in this game. It was reported in articles that the USA used several big scoring runs in the first half to to blow the game open and ultimately ended up in the 97 to 49 scoreline another article which is titled robertson jordan on target as u.s cages clobber chinese from july the 30th bobby knight was quoted as saying we played fairly well probably one of the great understatements of 1984 bobby knight was never one to uh heap the praise on his players so not overly surprising. On the, the the 30th of July, the other Telegraph wrote one of the cheesiest articles that uh, I read during our, our research uh, for these episodes, Adam. They reported that several of the US moves during the game, and I quote, did not translate into Chinese. <laughs> one of Leon Wood's journeys through the defense drew nods of appreciation and gestures of wonderment from the Chinese bench. The article then went on to say that don't feel bad guys, our walls aren't so great. Every country has a specialty. <laughs> Uh, and in a tale of the tape for China in the game, Jordan actually led the Chinese in scoring 13 to 11 <laughs> at one point in the first half. A bit of a fiasco, to be honest. And of course, we've talked all about the USA's build up to the games, taking on all these NBA All Star teams. And then China are only a few days removed from playing the LAPD. So it goes without saying that it was always going to be a whitewash. Now, the second game of the tournament took place on Tuesday, July 31st. USA took on Canada. They won comfortably by 21 points on this occasion. It was 89 to 68. So the USA went to 2 and 0 in the tournament. In 1983, a nearly identical Canadian team defeated a vastly different USA team on their way to winning the gold at the World University Games. Just a little fact there. Now, for the USA in this contest, Jordan was a leading scorer with 20 points. He was 10 of 17 from the field in just 24 minutes. Steve Alford had 13 points on 6 of 8 from the field. Vern Fleming, Chris Mullen and Sam Perkins all had 10 points apiece. And again, Leon Wood was the leading assist giver with 8 dimes. Really good stuff to see that uh, Leon Wood was a, a big contributor in those games in more ways than one would first expect just looking at the roster from the outside looking in. A couple of quick stats again. The USA, that can't be right. I've got the same stats from the previous game. 39 of 65 and 19 of 28. Have I just copied that and left it in there? That is remarkable and one of the most underrated stats of the 1984 Olympics that the USA's shooting numbers were exactly the same. <laughs> The first two games. <laughs> okay. Note to self, don't copy and paste text. Um, <laughs> There's our lead-in for episode four. <laughs> crazy stuff. All right. The USA led 43 to 28 at halftime. Canada's two equal high scorers had 11 points apiece. And Bill Wennington, who we'll mention later on in this episode, had seven points. Obviously, he's the most recognizable of those names from the Canadian team. Possibly Jay Triano as well, who was one of the players at that time as well. But Billy Wennington is probably the most memorable of those names who competed. Canada were held to just 40.6% from the field and they were out-rebounded 41-30. to 30. As you expect, USA had a comfortable margin in most statistical categories, including the blocks. They had five blocks to Canada's one. And despite the 21-point loss in the game, Canada's Eli Pasquale said we weren't outclassed by them. Uh, and then he also went on to say that we just didn't stick the ball in the hoop those first eight minutes. And I kind of thought to myself that, Eli, it's kind of important to stick the ball in the hoop. <laughs> well, 
eight minutes is kind of a long time to not sort of yeah. put the ball in the hoop, so it does make perfect sense. There's an article which is titled Knights Intimidation Leads US Hoopsters Past Canada. This was on August the 1st, and the Canadian coach had claimed that Bob Knight's reputation as an intimidator was affecting the officiating. Uh, no surprises, really, to be honest. The refs hear about, and I quote, bad, bad Bobby Knight, and don't call against the USA. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Another article, also on the same date, was titled Jordan US Overwhelm Canadians. I'll quote, I'm out there trying to do the best job I can possibly do, said Jordan, whose acrobatic form set dozens of flashbulbs off every time he shot the ball. I just try to do fundamental things and things that are not out of the ordinary, but I am glad that I have the crowd behind me. So again, Jordan sort of playing things down a bit there because he was just an athletic freak of nature at this point in his early career, but he's just trying to toe the team line and uh, just play it down there a bit, mate. And to show how well MJ had been playing up to this point in, in the other yeah, trials and also the games themselves, the register guard from Eugene in Oregon said that if there was any groaning going on in America about Jordan's performance versus Canada, it was in Portland, where Trailblazer fans might have been wondering about the Sam Bowie over MJ selection. Exactly right. It didn't take long for it to be on a national stage for people to start realising how great of a talent Jordan was. So I'm sure there'll be a few head scratches going on there. And uh, as you mentioned, after the other first game against China, Bobby Knight was glowing in the uh, in the performance of the US national team in saying that they weren't very sharp defensively <laughs> against the Canadians. He really was the king of understatement, Bobby Knight. That was a constant theme throughout the entire pre-build to the Olympics and then obviously the games themselves as well. Now let's get into the third contest, mate. On Wednesday, August the 1st, USA took on Uruguay and were comfortable winners by 36 points. It was 104 to 68. Now they moved to 3-0 and in these preliminary games. For the USA, Patrick Ewing had 17 points, 9 rebounds and 3 blocks. So that's obviously a fantastic performance. Michael Jordan had 16 points, 12 of which were in the first half. Sam Perkins had 14 points, Chris Mullen had 13, and Wayman Tisdale had an awesome game as well with 12 points and 10 boards. And once again, Leon Wood was the star in terms of handing out the assists, and he had nine assists, so he was racking up some fantastic numbers and really contributing across the board. The USA had an 18-0 scoring run midway through the first half, plus they held Uruguay to just 33% from the field. USA were up 58-37 to at the half, Uruguay's leading scorer had 24 points, so that was obviously a great performance from him. Sadly, the other contributions were lacking somewhat. The USA dismantled Uruguay on the boards. It was 53 to 33. US more than doubled the steals. They were 12 to 5 in that category, and they also had eight blocks to Uruguay's two. Uh, I'll quickly make mention of another article. It was titled Knights Cages Demonstrate Defensive Lesson to Uruguay. This is from August the 2nd. The Uruguayan coach was quoted as saying, and at no time did we think we could win. Perhaps if we could play five against seven. That sort of sums it up pretty nicely. Quite a few specific points that I wanted to to bring up from this game because this was the the first of the the other games that I actually saw in full. Some of the the differences in international basketball from 1984 compared to what I'm used to seeing now really stuck out. Just one from the the other player of the game. Ewing blocked the first Uruguay shot of the game emphatically, and it was all downhill uh, from that point for Uruguay in the game. The, the first thing that I noticed quite obviously was there was no three-point line, though the rule was actually introduced in, into, into FIBA and international rules in 1984. Yeah, that was interesting. I tried to narrow down the exact date of the three-point line introduction in terms of the Olympics and when it came into effect, but I could only find that it was just listed generically as 1984. So we can only assume at this rate that it was brought in post-Olympics or at least it was going to be delayed until the next Olympic competition, I suppose. Another one of the FIBA rules that was actually even brought up by the commentators during the game was that FIBA did not allow the breakaway rim that was being used in the NBA at, at the time. And just from memory, it was in its infancy at that point in time, I think, in its first handful of years. So the rims that were used during the games were actually just, you know, old school hoops that you see in any gym today. 
And at one point in time during the game, Patrick Ewing missed a two-handed power jam. And if the basket support hadn't been directly attached into the back of the hoop, he would have, would have shattered the backboard. In my opinion, he put a tremendous amount of force behind it. The, uh, the baskets that Daryl Dawkins shattered the backboard on actually had, had four supports at each corner of the backboard and nothing attached to the back of the hoop, whereas the other forum basket supports had three arms, including one that was anchored directly into the back of the hoop, giving it, it far more support. You certainly have plenty of attention to detail there, mate, because I didn't even notice the difference in the way the backboards were set up, so I need to pick up my observancy game. Totally unrelated, but I will say that I wish that Gerald Glass had been a monster dunker because he had the perfect surname to match the Daryl Dawkins-esque shattering of backboards. Agreed. In the game, there were a ridiculous amount of fouls uh, and whistles in general play early on. This made the game very stagnant and killed any flow of the game early on. And if it wasn't the game that it was historically, you'd have turned it off. It was a real eyesore. Another FIBA rule of the day that I actually wasn't even aware of was the three for two free throw rule, Adam. Yeah, this is a bit of a strange one. I did a little bit of research about it before we chatted today, and it's called the three for two rule. It was introduced back in 1976, from what I can understand. And a player had the possibility to shoot a third free throw if he missed one, if he missed one of the first two, which I'm sure in hindsight, players like Chris Dudley, Shaquille O'Neal, and even more modern day, Dwight Howard would have really appreciated. But yeah, very strange rule in the fact that it almost rewarded mediocrity. Yeah, agreed. And the officiating of the game was absolutely horrendous. I mentioned before there were a lot of calls which really slowed the game down early on. In particular, there was a Filipino ref who, Rodrigo Phelps, who was one of the commentators on the game, uh, said that he had earned the name Casper from an earlier <laughs> tournament because he was at times invisible. <laughs> During games, which I found funny, the Uruguayan point guard, Penado, did I pronounce that right? I have no idea, mate. You'll notice that in all my comments I'll be making throughout this episode, I go out of my way to not pronounce the players' names from other countries. He appeared to be wearing a gorilla vest, much the same as the one that Mr. Burns wore on The Simpsons underneath his jersey. He was a hideously hairy man. During the game, you could also see why Uruguay may have been hesitant to take the ball inside as Patrick Ewing never looked like he wasn't going to be able to block their shots because he was absolutely everywhere during the game. Well, we did mention his stat line in this game. and He really shone in this particular aspect, but also in the games that followed. So a quick question that I have just off the cuff would be, have we actually underrated Ewing's greatness, even going back as far as 84? Because he was just coming off the national championship, winning that for Georgetown in 1984, playing in the Olympics, was about to go back for his final season at Georgetown before turning pro and then being Rookie of the Year and so on. So do we actually underrate where Patrick Ewing is in the all-time greats? There's no question. Obviously, he had a Hall of Fame career and he was a terrific player in the NBA, but I actually think that he was a more spectacular and dominant player in in his earlier years like uh, in college and obviously yeah, in the 84 Olympics because he looked like he was about twice the height of everyone else which you know he probably was but his athleticism and his long arms and legs just yeah he was everywhere he was really spectacular right throughout the tournament couldn't agree more mate the US got many of their points uh, of steals and turnovers which but to easy baskets on the break. The the commentators spoke of a previous game in which the Uruguayans had an issue with their uniforms. They had white jerseys with yellow numbers on them. And after the game had started and the players had begun to sweat, the yellow colour of the numbers actually ran on their jerseys. <laughs> not ideal. Not ideal. <laughs> so um, obviously not put together by Nike or Adidas, the uniforms uh, for the Uruguayans in 1984. Watching the games, guys like John Conkak, Joe Klein, Jeff Turner only adds to the amazement of you know, how and why guys like Charles Barkley, John Stockton and Carl Malone were left off the team. Yeah, it's a really interesting point there. And I guess the only real way you can justify it is by looking at it in hindsight. So we always say that hindsight's a wonderful thing. Yeah. But the guys who did make it, earned their position and it's hard to fathom though some 30 years later 
the fact that future Hall of Famers would miss out on the account of those aforementioned guys. There's no question that we have the other benefit of hindsight and seeing what those guys who missed out, what they became and actually what the guys who actually made the team, what they became. But yeah, it's something that definitely stuck out to me. One more quick thing there. Barkley and Stockton obviously were very close to making the final squad. They were really held in high regard as well during those trials. So they were very unlucky probably to miss. But given the strength of the overall team, I suppose, Bobby Knight and the other assistants had a particular amount of guys I wanted to choose for various other reasons, I guess, in terms of the overall team fit. But yeah, very unlucky to miss. In 1992, watching the other Dream Team play against um, some of the other countries, such as Angola, something came back to me when I was watching this game against Uruguay in that the opponent, uh, Angola in 92, uh, Uruguay in this game, the opponent was simply outsized, intimidated. They missed layups during the game. Uh, and at some points, Uruguay bodies were strewn across the court. And I'm convinced at some points they actually staged injuries during the game as well. Now, not saying that Angola tried to stage injuries, but just the uh, difference in size and talent and speed, everything was really, really apparent. It was also very possible that Uruguay had warmed up by playing the LAPD. <laughs> oh, low blow, low blow. They were actually class apart. There's no doubt about that. The last 10 minutes of the game were a complete dog's breakfast, really, really sloppy. The, the U.S. was simply better at finishing at the offensive end and Uruguay were rushed right throughout the game by the U.S. defensive pressure and the added length and speed that they had. Yep. Can you actually imagine being on one of these teams that had literally no chance of competing, let alone winning against Team USA? I would have been intimidated beyond belief and just sweating absolute bullets. As I mentioned before, it really appeared also that these teams like Uruguay were intimidated beyond belief, yeah, because it was no contest right from the start. Mm. The most outstanding player from this game, in my opinion, was Patrick Ewing. His rebounding and shot blocking had a massive influence on the game. The name Octopus that he was given earlier on was fitting for Ewing at, at this age with his ridiculously long arms and legs, which were only made to look longer in those ridiculously short shorts. <laughs> uh, and something that we should also mention was in the copy of the game that you were so allegedly so generous <laughs> given to me in, in preparation for the talk, the second half of this game was shot completely Via a handicam. Yeah, remarkable stuff. <laughs> remarkable stuff. Uh, for mine, and I said this to you before as well, this just adds to the allure of these games from 1984. In, t in 2014, literally players can barely sniff without actually making headlines and having someone capture their every move on social media. So I find it remarkable that someone actually managed to sneak in a camcorder to the forum because based on the size of those camcorders back in... 1984, they were literally the size of a suitcase. So <laughs> they did a good job to be able to put it up on their shoulder and actually be able to film the game without getting somebody to actually notice they were filming it illegally. Extraordinary. Now, let's get on to the fourth game, mate. This one took place on Friday, the 3rd of August. It was USA versus France. Massive blowout here. The US won very comfortably, 120 to 62. So they progressed to 4-0 and in the preliminaries. Three French players missed the game due to unspecified team violations. And you'd have to think now in hindsight that they must rue their decision some 30 years later that they actually missed one game of the Olympics due to their team violations and it was against Team USA. The uh, definition of bad luck. For sure. So for Team USA, and this just shows the balanced scoring load they had, Steve Alford this time was a leading scorer with 18 points. And we should note as well, he was only 19 at this stage. I think he was only maybe a couple of months off turning 20, but still he was only a sophomore at Indiana, led by, of course, coach Bobby Knight, who was coach of the US team. But he had 18 points. Jordan had 16 points on 8 of 12 from the field. Fern Fleming had 15 points. Alvin Robinson, 14. Pat Ewing had, I don't think I've ever called him Pat, but anyhow, Pat Ewing had <laughs> 11 points. And Leon Wood, again, lighting up the assist column with 10 as I mentioned, and as you'd understand, based on the scoreline, USA were dominant in all the statistical categories, 36 to 11 in the assists, 17 to 5 in steals, and 
forced France into 29 turnovers to USA's only 14. France had three scorers in double digits. Really a very dominant performance from the US. A couple of quick points from some articles. August the 4th, there was an article called, and it's well titled, Americans Fry French, 120 to 62. And in this article, it says that Leon Wood took a charge with the USA up by 53 points. Also, it said John Koncak dove for a loose ball with just over two minutes to play. The 58-point margin was the most one-sided USA victory since defeating Korea by 66 points back in 1964. After the game, only four teams remained undefeated. It was USA and Spain from Group B and Italy and Yugoslavia in Group A. Let's be honest, if Leon Wood hadn't have taken that charge or if John Konkak hadn't have dove for that loose ball with (laughs) over two minutes to play and the United States are up by... 50 to 60 points. Imagine what, what, what Bobby Knight would have done. Imagine what Bobby Knight would have done to them. There may have actually been a fatality on the court. <laughs> I couldn't agree more, mate. He was very intimidating, as we mentioned in a couple of early articles. Uh, very intimidating guy. You always want to do the absolute best you could to please him whilst you're uh, on court. So fair to say that's why those guys were taking charges and diving for loose balls in the waning minutes of a game when they're up by 55 or 60 points. The fifth game of the tournament was on Saturday, the 4th of August. It was USA versus Spain. The final score was 101 to 68. And this was the final game of the preliminary round. USA, of course, were 5 and 0 for those first five games. Jordan lit up the scoring column with 24 points on 11 of 14 from the field. He hit his last nine shots. Chris Mullen had 16 points and 12 of those were in the second half. He also had six steals as well, Mullen. So that was a great effort. Patrick Ewing, 15 points, 9 boards. Leon Wood had 12 points and 12 assists. So another remarkable effort from Leon Wood in terms of his assist levels. And Sam Perkins had a great game as well with a double-double, 11 points and 11 boards. A few quick notes from the game. Twice in the first half, Spain led momentarily. They were up 21 to 20 and 37 to 36. Now, at that stage in the fifth game for the US, that was the first time, the only times they actually had trailed in a game in those first five contests. It was very close in the first half, but gradually Spain were just no match for the US after the second half commenced. Four Spaniards scored 10 points or more. The other two stat lines for Leon Wood and Sam Perkins to have two double-doubles in an international game also was a a pretty good effort. Yeah, definitely. On the game, uh, ESPN legend Bob Lay was on the call with... Digger Phelps, which I found very cool. And it was all Patrick Ewing early on with his transition from offense to defense. His uh, athleticism, even at his size at that age, was spectacular to watch. Spain were definitely a lot more composed than Uruguay, but like most other teams, were restricted by the size of the US squad. Ewing, Perkins and Tisdale down low were just too much for the Spaniards to contain on, on defense. However, the Spaniards were a lot more willing to take the ball to the hoop than some of the other teams that played the US. On August the 5th, there's an article which is titled Jordan Beats Spain, Then US. A great quote in here, it says, Michael Jordan is like rubber, not a man, said Spain's coach. He has agility, speed and good jumping. And also in this article as well, it says that MJ hit six of USA's final nine baskets before the half. And that included a 28-foot bomb at the buzzer, giving the USA a slender lead of 46 to 41. A real contest for the first time in the tournament. About four minutes into the second half, MJ injured his left ankle and he limped off the court. The lead was just three points at that stage. He sat down for about eight minutes, in which time Leon Wood, Chris Mullen and Sam Perkins led a 15-2 run that ultimately secured the victory for the US. There was a period in the first half where Wayman Tizal had a bit of a rough patch. He took an elbow in the mouth on a rebound attempt, which actually sent him down to the floor. Then ESPN misspelled his name on the screen. <laughs> W-A-Y-M-O-N instead of M-A-N. That's not a great little patch of time there for Wayman. 
with Alfred and Alvin Robertson on the floor, Robertson played the point and brought the ball up quite a lot during the game, uh, which actually reminded me of the 1991 All-Star game when the Eastern Conference, who was short of point guards, had to play guys like Dumas and Robertson play the point during the game, which for Alvin at points, it didn't go that well. Any mention of the 1991 All-Star game is, is fine by me, mate. I love that. The fact that it was in Charlotte, North Carolina doesn't hurt things either. Now, Another article, this time from August the 5th, it was titled Jordan Definitely Basketball Version of a Perfect 10. And this is one of the better articles that I've found in the entire research for the NB85 project. Uh, I'll read off a few quotes here from this article that's um, just a fascinating insight on Jordan at such a young age prior to him actually playing a professional game. They're going to have to start grading Michael Jordan the way they do gymnasts or the men's basketball competition at the Olympics is going to be as compelling as all those thrilling matchups in small ball rifles over the next eight days. Hold on to your Tiffany priced Olympic souvenirs and watch Michael take off from Beverly Hills and finish off fast breaks with whams and jams. Now the best line of the article is this. The fact that Jordan was only the third player chosen in the NBA draft after Akeem Abdul-Olajuwon and Sam Bowie is going to be a big question someday in Trivial Pursuit. Prophetic. Very much so. Michael Jordan will have more 10s than anybody when the Olympics are over. They just won't be on the scoreboard. And this is one of the many articles which I'll include in the show notes to this episode. And you can find those at inallairness.com slash nb85-4. Chris Mullen was automatic in this game. His, I call them casual jumpers, were very reminiscent of his role and how he played in 1992 in Barcelona. At times when he took a jumper, took one of his you know, 18 to 20 foot jumpers, it, it appeared as though there was no one anywhere near him and it was like everyone else on the court stopped at that exact moment and he just like casually with that gorgeous shooting stroke of his just popped in a jumper. Yeah, I love the fact that uh, Chris Mullins also a left-hander like myself and uh, I don't mind singing my prizes, mate. I'm one of the greatest jump shooters in Australia, undiscovered, but one of the greatest. Despite coming a distant second in <laughs> our own personal three-point shootout <laughs> last year. Yeah, that's, yeah, to be continued, to be continued. It was actually quite hard taking notes during this game as it was really enjoyable to watch. As with the... Uruguay game, the animation of the refs was very enjoyable to watch. Perhaps due to the fact that they were in Los Angeles, the refs were showcasing some phenomenal acting ability because they were over the top. It was almost like uh, Monty Python sort of stuff in terms of their acting. Very flamboyant. And speaking of flamboyant, uh, MJ's 18 first half points were finished off with a 30-foot buzzer beater, which you mentioned before as well. In the final seconds of that first half, Jordan actually feigned a three, and then with about six seconds left, he passed off at the last moment. Then, just by pure coincidence, the ball ends up spilling back to Jordan, who was even further out of that time, and then he hit that big bomb at the buzzer, which was absolutely fantastic to watch and really got the crowd into a frenzy as the first half ended. Let's get into the sixth game, mate. This was the quarterfinals. It was on Monday, the 6th of August. It also must be said at this point, mate, Detlef Schrempf, who was playing for West Germany, was having a great Olympics. He had 36 points in a win over Brazil that would secure a quarterfinals matchup with the might of the US. US were 78 to 67 winners and kept their perfect record alive. It was by far the closest game that Team USA had faced during the 84 Olympics. And were it not for foul trouble to their two best players, who were Detlef Schrempf and your good pal, Uwe Blab, West Germany actually could have really challenged the USA for victory. As for Uwe Blab, never met the man, but it was very good of the uh, <laughs> it was very good of the US to match their red uniforms to his striking red hair. And speaking of hair, the players in 1984 definitely weren't afraid to rock a moustache in an observation that was a delight to the eyeballs. <laughs> yeah. Clearly, mate, it had remained in vogue because the 1984 NBA draft, just a month or so prior, there were moustaches left, right, and centre. So a bit of shameless self-promotion in allairness.com slash 25, and you can take a listen to our magnificent recap of the 1984 NBA draft. I believe that the 2000 Olympics in Sydney may have been called the Friendly Games. Would that have been correct? I may be wrong, but I am 100% certain that the 1984 Olympics were called the Hairy Lips Olympics. <laughs> 
This is NB85. In the game itself, Steve Orford was another of the high scorers. He had 17 points, along with three assists and four steals. MJ had 14 points, Wayman Tisdale 11 with eight boards, and Chris Mullen had 10. On MJ's 14 points, he actually really struggled with his jump shot in this game. He actually started the game off going three for 12, so he wasn't afraid to try to get the shots up, but he was you know, definitely struggling with his jumper. Coming into this game, the USA were averaging 102 points per game and they had an average winning margin of almost 40 points. They led 46 to 32 at the half and led by 22 points midway through the second half before West Germany staged a really good comeback. Detlef Schrempf was playing very well. He had 16 points and 6 rebounds. He had been averaging almost 22 points a game, but he fouled out with over nine minutes left in the second half. So to still get within 11 points and have your best player on the bench after being fouled out, it was a really good effort by the West Germans to fight back into the game. Uwe Blub, who played for Bobby Knight at Indiana University, he had scored six points early on, but he finished with just 10 for the game. As we are both massive fans of NBA in the 1990s, one observation that I made, which I'm sure that you would have noticed as well, was it was really bizarre seeing Chris Mullen and Detlef without their trademark flat tops in the game. That's how they looked through a majority of the time that we were massive fans of the NBA, but this was just sort of prior to that whole era taking place and uh, they had a slightly different hairstyle they were rocking at that time. Now, there's a, a good article which was titled... Offered fires US into medal round from August the 7th. From this article, a few facts that I've gleaned said that the game was played at a much slower pace, mostly due to a large number of fouls that were caught on both teams, almost 60 combined for the match. Steve Alford led the USA with 17 points, hitting five of his eight shots in the second half. MJ still scored 14 points, but was limited to four of 14 from the field. West Germany employed a 2-3 zone, which caused the US problems offensively. Steve Alford was right there with, with Chris Mullen as a press breaker in this game. He was terrific from the field, as you mentioned before, going 5 for 8 in the second half. The legendary video, Come Fly With Me, spoke of MJ as the indisputable driving force of the US team during the 84 Olympics. I would also put Pat Ewing and Chris Mullen in that category as well. Both had terrific tournaments. Yeah, I'm not sure why I said Pat earlier because I've never referred to him as Pat Ewing. Um, well, I felt left out. That's why I threw one in there. No, good. I'm glad you did. Now, just one other thing uh, in terms of pronouncing – I can't even say pronounce. <laughs> in terms of pronouncing people's names, Steve Orford – I've referred to him in earlier episodes as Alfred, then I've now referred more to Alford, but I'm not exactly sure how it's pronounced because I've watched numerous clips on YouTube even trying to hear his name said so I can actually definitively work it out, but maybe the only way I'll actually work it out is to try and invite him onto the podcast as a guest in the future, and then I will ask him and get the 100% answer of how to pronounce it, but I'm going to go with Alford in contrast to your Alfred. You were talking about how highly you hold Ewing and Mullen uh, in terms of how great they were on Team USA. I've got some belated, some 30 years later, newfound respect for numerous Team USA participants. I've thoroughly enjoyed learning so much more about the entire team and the build-up to the games by doing this project. But guys like Leon Wood, who his career didn't obviously go too well in the NBA, but he was very highly touted in 1984 heading into the NBA. But he had a, a great Olympics campaign. Guys like him, obviously Alford, who didn't, go and translate his game into great heights at the NBA level. Uh, these sort of guys, it was just a, it's been great learning about their careers and, and their actual importance to the USA at this time. Yeah, it's, it's definitely expanded my knowledge on a lot of these guys that I didn't really know a whole lot about before. And I can recall in past years seeing some of these guys being members of the 84 Olympic team uh, and wondering why. Um, actually, with some of them, I still do wonder why, but there's a few of them that I didn't really know who they were, like a Leon Wood, uh, and now I've definitely expanded my knowledge on those guys. You mentioned before about Steve Alford's name and the pronunciation of it. Well, myself and my girlfriend have a, a car each, and they're all Fords. <laughs> Oh, you've been holding that joke in, haven't you? <laughs> that was another poor play on words there, mate, with uh, Holden. 
Holden is a brand of car for those that aren't familiar. Yeah. I've got nowhere to go, mate. Where do you want to go to from here? That's fine. Like we always saw him in the pros, Wayman Tisdale always seemed to be smiling and generally having a good time when on court. In this game, he had an awesome M1 reverse dunk where he caught an Steve Alford pass with his back to the basket and went straight up and dunked it on an opponent. It was a really, really cool dunk. Yeah, he was a great guy to watch during these games. Of the DVDs that I may or may not have distributed your way from this Olympic campaign, he he seemed like such a great guy. And sadly, mate, a lot of casual hoops fans will never actually get to appreciate Wayman's greatness, particularly the incredible fact that he was named All-American in his first two NCAA seasons. Well, hopefully... We can shed a bit of light on, you know, on Wayman to, to anyone who happens to, to want to listen to the podcast because he was, as you mentioned, fantastic to watch in these games. And even as an NBA player, one thing that I definitely remember the most about Wayman in his time in the NBA was how smooth he was for such a big guy. During the 84 Olympics, he kind of came across as a bit of a bruiser, big body down low. But one thing that I'll always remember from Wayman as an NBA player is his smile and that smooth stroke he had as a lefty, mate. Well said, mate. Game seven of the USA's tournament, mate, was on Wednesday, the 8th of August. USA took on Canada. It was a rematch. From earlier on in the tournament, the US were victors 78-59 to and continued their unbeaten run by winning this game, advanced into the gold medal contest. And it's time for a shameless name drop here on NBA 85. <laughs> Good friend of the podcast, Bill Wennington, came off the bench for the Canadians in the game. One of the other uh, cool points from the game was that the opening tip was between Canada's 6'10.5 centre Greg Wiltia mm-hmm. and 6'6 Michael Jordan. Yeah, it's an interesting fact that Jordan jumped center in a number of the USA's games. Obviously, he was a athletic freak, so that always helps. But I guess it would have put off the opposing center by going up in the jump thinking it was going to be Patrick Ewing or one of the other seven-footers. But instead, it was a 6'5", 6'6", Michael Jordan. So that was interesting. Canada had upset Italy, who were their 1980s silver medalists, to earn the right to play the USA in this semifinal game. And for the USA, Chris Mullen was the leading scorer. He had 20 points, 14 of which were in the second half. Jordan had 13 points, but again struggled from the field. He was 5 of 15 this time around. Patrick Ewing had 10 points, all in the first half. He had 7 boards as well. Sam Perkins had 11 rebounds. And the USA were up 43 to 26 at the half. Canada's leading scorer for the game was Jay Triano, who had 16 points. As you mentioned a moment ago, Bill Wennington was playing for Canada and he had three points. Now, there was an article on August the 9th which was titled Americans Bounce into Gold Medal Game. It mentioned in that article that this was Chris Mullins' first start of the Olympics. The commentators spoke during the game of the 13,000 average crowd for the US Games at the Forum, which was well below the 17,500 capacity of the stadium. And it was quite bizarre to see so many empty seats during the Games. Yeah, it sure was. Even in the gold medal game, and we'll get to that in a moment, but you can still see scattered seats even on the lowest level right near courtside where there were just empty seats the entire game. Really baffling that that would be the case given that it was on US home soil. Yeah, strange. The USA put tremendous defensive pressure on the Canadians early on in the game. It actually also took until the semi-final for Pat Ewing to become Patrick Ewing and for Wayman Tisdale to finally get his name spelled correctly <laughs> on the TV. Bill Wennington showed his elite athleticism for a, a seven-foot white guy with a, a spectacular missed putback dunk attempt during the game. I actually brought up Bill's spectacular putback dunk against Orlando on Christmas Day in 1993 to him, the first time that I met him, and his recollection of the dunk was crystal clear, which I found really, really cool. I'm glad that you mentioned that because um, not only have you just named meeting Bill Wennington and knowing him, um, Billy Wennington and his putback dunks were great. I think he did about three or four as a member of the Bulls where he just came out of nowhere with those really strong throwback dunks off missed shots, so... And the play you're talking about in this game against the US in 84, that was phenomenal how athletic he was to get up there. And I had to rewind that just to make sure I actually saw how high he got up and how athletic he looked. So good point. It deserved to be rewound and watched again. It was really spectacular. And as an uneducated fan of the game, if you looked at at Billy, he looked like a seven-foot stiff. Yeah, for a guy of his size, he was really, really athletic. 
the commentators spoke of Wellington not getting enough playing time right throughout the tournament and it actually being a negative for the, the Canadian national team. One fun note, as I like to bring up, Canada head coach Jack Donahoe was doing his best Frank Layden impersonation during the game. <laughs> we need to try and find a, a still shot and put that up because I thought it was Frank Layden. When you just said that, it hadn't actually dawned on me that you were referring to the fact that they were sort of lookalikes as such, but quite strikingly similar in many respects in the way they look. Let's get to the gold medal game itself, mate. This was on Friday the 10th of August. USA took on Spain and were winners taking home the gold medal 96-65. to 65. So obviously they went undefeated 8-0 throughout the Olympic campaign and there's plenty of things that we've got to chat about to do with this game in particular. The US starters for the gold medal game, it was Michael Jordan, Sam Perkins, Pat Ewing, Alvin Robertson and Steve Alford. MJ delivered a final message to his starting teammates just prior to the tip. So clearly he was the on-court team leader and of course everybody was sort of falling into line with what he was saying. Interestingly, the first Spanish possession, we're talking about the gold medal game at the 1984 Olympics. Spain have a second chance to take on the USA after meeting them earlier on in the preliminary games. The very first offensive possession that Spain had, number 11, Corbelan, who was the guy that you mentioned was the doctor of cardiology. He attempted a 20-foot behind-the-back pass, which was broken up by long-armed Sam Perkins. Coincidentally, given he was a doctor of cardiology, he also gave his coach a heart attack on the bench. That was the first play in the Olympics gold medal game. He was also searching for a pulse on that pass afterwards <laughs> as well. It died. It did. It died, sadly. But, um, yeah, quite... Amazing that the first play you'd go with would be a very low percentage sort of flashy move like that when you're taking on the might of the USA. The USA bench players didn't sit down until the first basket was made, which I thought was a nice touch. Obviously, it didn't take long for them to make that first basket anyhow, but you could see the bench guys all standing up and cheering them on until that first basket went in. Another great point to come from this game, Digger Phelps mentioned that Michael Jordan packed the wrong uniform for the gold medal game. So the police, and it might have been the LAPD, for all we know, they might have had another chance to get a bit of airtime here. The police, along with Don Donoher, who was the USA's assistant coach, they drove back to the Olympic Village to get MJ's correct uniform, which was less than an hour before the game actually had started. So that was an interesting little bit of trivia there. We need to see some footage from that warm-up game between the Chinese national team and the LAPD. The LAPD may or may not have been wearing USA team uniforms. Quite possible, mate. Quite possible. As Doug Collins did in, in Bulls practices during the 80s in regards to MJ having the other wrong uniform, I wondered if they had have moved MJ onto the Spanish squad at half time if Spain could have come back and been the US. It's interesting you mention that because in 1990, Jordan played in a Spanish All-Star game during the off-season and he played one half for each team. It actually did happen uh, some six years later, mate, but maybe not with the same consequence as a gold medal at stake. Now, there was a great early sequence in this game. Jordan, obviously renowned for his great defensive prowess as well. With his quick hands, he reached in and got a steal. The ball ended up in the hands of Patrick Ewing, who threw a, sorry, Pat Ewing, who threw a 45-foot pass to MJ. MJ waited for the ball to bounce once, caught it, and then delivered his own bounce pass to a slashing Alvin Robertson, who went up for the monster jam. And Alvin actually hit his head on the bottom of the backboard just for good measure. And then on another acrobatic made layup, ESPN's Bob Lee said, in terms of Michael Jordan, that is the rubber man move that Spain was fearing and admiring in the same breath. Rubber man would have to be on par with <laughs> Johnny Kerr's Captain Marvel uh, as nicknames that MJ was given at some point in time that we are all glad it didn't stick. <laughs> yeah, I, I think um sounds good in theory, but when you hear it a few times, it's like, mm, that's a bit awkward. We already have talked a little bit about the referees having some pretty ordinary performances the worst intentional foul call in the history of basketball was made against Wayman Tisdale as soon as it was announced to the crowd because, it, quite honestly, you couldn't even tell at the time except if you are watching the referee signal the intentional. Once it was put over the loudspeaker, the boo birds were out in full force because it was just a, an astonishing, ridiculous call. A couple of other quick things. The commentators were marvelling at Jordan's moves and the crowd reaction to his acrobatics is actually audible on many occasions during this game. MJ, on the back of a gorgeous floating jumper in the lane, gave USA a 36-19 to 19 lead. 
we already said that the referees have over-officiated the first half. There were some stunning calls that were made that were clearly just not there. And I've got in my notes that the following comment I had scribbled down was, let it go, refs, Bobby Knight may explode. So <laughs> Bobby Knight did very well to maintain his composure without actually blowing up at the refs. Some of the officiating right throughout the, the other tournament left me amazed. It was very, very evident just how poor some of the calls were. It was really, really interesting to see. Now, off a USA turnover, Bobby Knight kicked over a stack of water cups and, of course, let his emotions get the better of him. USA ended the first half up 52-29 to and well on their way to winning that gold medal. To start the second half, as per the first possession of the game, Spain again turned the ball over on an attempted fancy and very unnecessary pass, so they still hadn't learnt their lesson from the opening of the game. A slow start to the second half, it was 54-33, to and Bobby Knight called for timeout to try and gather the team's composure and then just get them reset, ready to go to play out the final 20 minutes before taking home the gold. Steve Alford, I've mentioned that he was a very important player on the squad. I've probably underrated him severely all these years, and it's only now that researching for this podcast series, I understand his value to the team because there was some initial scepticism that he should be included on the roster given he was under the tutelage of Bobby Knight at Indiana anyhow, but I think he really showed his worth to the team throughout the Olympic campaign. I agree. I knew of Steve Alford, but knew very little about his career. Observations of him during the games were his quickness, his defensive tenacity and, uh, and ball pressure and his own ball handling were, were terrific for the US. And then, as I mentioned earlier on, his jump shot was automatic right the way through the tournament. Hmm. Later on in the game, Digger Phelps talks about the advent of Euros entering the NBA and how it was coming. He spoke very highly about Detlef Schrempf's game being suited for the NBA. So, of course, this era is just prior to when the Europeans would start coming over en masse, but he was obviously... Uh, spot on with the fact that they'd have a great impact in years to come. Bob Lee also made a great comment, and I'm going to paraphrase this, but he said something along the lines of, USA have the gold. They're now playing against the history books, the 1960 USA team, and future teams into next century. So I thought that was really fitting that he made a comment like that because clearly the USA team wanted to make a point and be a team of the ages, and uh, it was quite prophetic as well, given that in 1992, with the advent of professionals in the NBA being able to play in the Olympics, that this team was really going to be right up there with the all-time greats. Both commentators actually made mention that MJ was a fan of the Lakers during this game as well, which I found quite interesting. Uh, with five minutes to go in the game, MJ and Ewing finally take a seat, and then it's a standing ovation from the crowd as they sit on the bench, and then some of the reserves get to have their moment in the spotlight. So I thought that was pretty cool as well, that the standing ovation was given to these great contributors for the USA team. At a certain point of the game, the, the US just they broke the back of the Spaniards and like, the whole second half of the game was a procession to the final siren and then off to the gold medal. A fun little moment towards the end of the game, there's a huge dunk by John Koncak and the jubilant celebration from the US bench was absolutely priceless. They were absolutely loving it. Now, being John Contract, I <laughs> assume that they were cheering for him. <laughs> You'd have to imagine they were cheering for him, mate. Yeah, definitely. You'd hope so. Yeah, and just at the end of the actual game DVD that I may or may not have, there was a little story about Chris Mullen where he was talking about what happened after the game. They started to take the nets down from either end of the court, and when Mullen was up there unhooking the net from the actual rim itself, when they were lifting him down, his gold medal actually came loose from the strapping and then fell onto the floor. Somebody at ground level picked up his gold medal and actually handed it back to him and he was oblivious to the fact that it even came off from the strap that it was on. And he was just relaying that story on in a little piece that they aired after the actual gold medal game. I thought that was quite a fascinating little insight there that not many people would have known about either. I guess he was lucky that it was a, a police officer that picked it up who was standing just under the hoop at the time when the guys were cutting down the net because, yeah, that's pretty extraordinary that he almost lost his gold medal. That wraps up the Olympic campaign there, mate. The USA steamrolled to the gold medal as most expected. They were 8-0. and oh. Just a fantastic effort to be able to reclaim gold given they missed out in 1980 due to the boycott. They last had won it in 1976 and all was well again in the state of US hoops. 
In hindsight, I would love to hear a detailed expression from Bobby Knight behind each of the selections for the team, then also his thoughts on, on each player's effectiveness and if it met his pre-games uh, expectations. Because as I said, in hindsight, there were some surprising selections to the US squad. And I'd love to hear what Coach Knight thought of how each of the guys went throughout the tournament. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, it'd be very interesting to hear him give a, a detailed breakdown of what actually transpired during those games and his honest opinion some 30 years later as well. And then about three or four days after the Olympic Games concluded in Los Angeles in 1984, we have the training camp for the 1984-85 Chicago Bulls team. Yeah, which is very good timing and that will be examined in much more depth in episode five of this nb85 series so i look forward to that as well thanks again mate for being part of the show and i'll speak to you again in the not too distant future giddy up thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues in allairness.com check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high profile guests follow me on twitter at in all Anus. please add your like to the show's social hub facebook.com slash in join me next time for another edition of the show